This is an AMI podcast. I'm Jyotha Gupta and this is The Pulse. We all want to belong, find places where we are accepted and valued for who we are. In order to belong, many people with disabilities try to suppress parts of ourselves, conceal that which makes us different. Try and pass as able-bodied until there is a moment of reckoning. Through a process of unlearning, the act of hiding ourselves away, we embrace our disabilities as fundamental to our personhood. Come out on the other side, loud and proud and fiercely disabled to find community with other disabled people reject ableism and oppression belonging is reclaiming our disabled selves our agency and power today we speak to author dorothy ellen palmer about her new memoir falling for myself it's time to put your finger on the pulse And welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Jyotha Gupta. And my guest today is Dorothy Ellen Palmer, author of a new memoir called Falling for Myself. The book is available as a paperback and in Kindle edition, as well as Kobo e-book. Dorothy, welcome to The Pulse. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to have you on the program. Now, I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, having put out a new book. But why did you want to write your memoir now? Well, I'm about to turn 65. I guess I figured it was time. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived most of my life hiding the two central fundamental parts of my personhood, as the introductory essay put it. I hid my disability and I hid my adoption. Um, I was disabled from birth with what were then called birth effects, congenital anomalies in both feet. I had multiple childhood surgeries and I convinced myself that I walked well enough to pass in the walking world. I didn't really, but I told myself I did. And as I aged, I needed further surgeries and then um, a walker, crutches, and finally now a mobility scooter and occasionally a wheelchair. And in that process, I learned to reclaim not just my disabled body and my disabled community, but also my adopted self and to realize that any definition of me as a burden was wrong and one that I could resist in community with other people. I loved your book. I read it in one sitting, and I have to tell you, one of the things that I noticed right away about the book was the fact that the chapters were arranged in alphabetical order. I would read on to find out that that was very intentional on your part. What was the significance of the alphabet in your life? I think it has multiple significances. Um, The one thing I had in common with my adoptive mother was that she was a great reader. And I wanted to read well to please her to be able to talk to her. Um, The alphabet also, for me, um, was something I chanted as a little girl in moments of danger to try to keep myself grounded and in control. And it was also an argument that I developed for myself later in life that if the general public is sitting with a belief that you disagree with 
and you call that an alphabet argument sitting, say, at a, a G or an H, and you want to move the general opinion down to an LMNOP, <laughs> then you have to go to QRSTUVWXYZ so that more people can move along into the middle. Mm-hmm. So the alphabet functioned in all of those ways in that book. That's oh, very interesting. Um, the other part of the book, just one of the quotes that jumped out at me was a pair of of, of enemies that became longstanding friends. I just want to quickly note my language jumped out. Pretty ableist, but uh, sorry, just kind of <laughs> slipped out. Uh, talk to me a little bit about why you wanted to refer to your feed in that way. Um, Herkimer and Horatio are my left and my right feet. Um, when I was eight years old and met the doctor who was became one of my very good friends, he was this, uh, the head surgeon-in-chief at Sick Kids, Dr. Robert Salter. He treated me with great respect. And one of the first things he said to me was that he could do operations on my feet to make them articulate more like a foot. And I thought that meant to talk. <laughs> and um, after my operations, I believed and still believe that my feet talk to me on a daily basis. And they tell me what they need, what they won't do, what they might do. And between the three of us, we negotiate. Um, When I am in opposition to them for most of my life, we weren't friends. Um, They became my longstanding friends and stood for me much longer than any doctor expected them to, precisely because I listened to them. I befriended them. Mm -hmm. And just a few minutes ago, you talked about how you tried to pass in the walking world not always successfully, but you tried your best in that you were in the disabled closet, but you recognized that there was a catch-22 in that in being in that closet. What were you trying to get at there? Um, if you're in the disabled closet, you're alone. You feel shamed. You feel frightened. You're in the dark. <laughs> and it's kind of smelly. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not the kind of place that has light and energy and fun and community. And um, the more we can get out of that closet, the more we can join in the disabled community, the more we can reach out to able people and say, hey, our rights are human rights. Let's all work together. Mm-hmm. I think the, the more we're joining other marginalized groups who have fought out of their closets as well. Mm-hmm. And you start to feel the claustrophobia of being in that closet. And then in the book you say, and it's so surprising that the hand that's reaching for the key is my own. So it's very interesting to see that progression. Uh, the, the other part of your identity is so enmeshed with your identity as a disabled person is being an adoptee. We briefly touched on it. But did your disability factor into a feeling of not quite fitting in with your adopted family? Oh, Absolutely. There were so many years where I couldn't separate the shame of disability from the shame of adoption. They were inextricably woven and interwoven and relinked and rebraided, and and I felt that I had been given up by my biological mother because I was uh, disabled, which wasn't true, but I convinced myself of that as a child, and I was convinced that I was a double burden. I was a burden as an adoptee, and I was a burden as a disabled person. And being able to um, find my biological parents eventually, much later in life, made me shed that burden as well. And I think once you start to reject um, yourself as a burden as a disabled person, you can also start to reject the notion 
of being a burden as an adoptee. So the two of them always bounced off each other, sometimes to make me feel bad about myself, but eventually to help me free myself of both of those shames. We're speaking to Dorothy Ellen Palmer, author of a new memoir, Falling for Myself. Dorothy, I, I, I noticed that the concept of intersectionality recurs in your book quite often. So you've got this concept that I would like you to explain to us, but also sort of explain to us what the significance of intersectionality was in your book and in your life. Sure. Um, I came to that later in life. I always considered myself a feminist, but I didn't understand that intersectionality mm-hmm. until I did a great deal of reading. Um, and that came from my understanding of disability justice and how disability justice is by definition intersectional Mm -hmm. because there are so many other oppressed identities that will intertwine with and depend on the notion of disability justice. When we look at climate change, for example, we look at how it will disproportionately harm seniors, disabled people, particularly poor disabled people, particularly poor, disabled, racialized women, all of those intersections are all linked to the concept of disability justice. So it's kind of like an ever-expanding view of the world that you can use disability sort of as a center point, but the more you think about it, the more intersectional it becomes. I want to follow up on some of what you just said here, because Part of your book talks about the relationship between living with a disability and also growing older, recognizing that too often the disability movement is quite focused on the youth. Can you expand on that for us? Um, I'm very grateful to people half my age. (laughs) (laughs) Many of them, I I would say Alice Wong in particular, of disability movement was central to my understanding of myself as a disabled person. But I also think that there's this huge missed opportunity. Um, Disabled people are 22% of Canada. Seniors are 30% of Canada. Mm -hmm. There's this huge Venn diagram area of overlap, which would be an incredible, powerful force for change if disabled people and seniors were able to see more of their commonalities and work together. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's Um, going to be a process of both the disability movement reaching out to seniors and seniors realizing that there are things that the disabled movement is fighting for that would really help them as well. And also reimagining their lives uh, as they acquire disabilities and feeling that their lives are still valuable and that there are things that they can still do and accomplish and be proud of. Yes, exactly. The trajectory of ableism is supposed to be that once you get older, you give up and you gently fade off into the night. (laughs) (laughs) And obviously a lot of older people don't particularly want to do that, but they don't necessarily have an understanding that they can fight that collectively together with disabled people who are expected to have the same trajectory and don't really want it either. The book is called Falling for Myself, and if you just took a a look at the cover, you might think "Hmm, it's a self-help book. But is the book, in fact, a self-help book, or does it go beyond that to really offer a call to action and call for a social justice movement? Um, That's interesting. I've never considered it a self-help book for a second, although it did help me, and I would like to think it might help other people. Hmm. Um, It is a call to action. It's an 
attempt to get beyond the disability bubble and to uh, talk to, to able people, to talk to people who are progressive in general, who are interested in any kind of intersectionality. It's also an attempt to say that so many of us, by the time we age, will be facing these issues, and the inaccessibility that we don't address now won't be there when you need it. So it really does affect all of us um, in the long run. Dorothy, you describe Stella Young as being your third mother. Why is it that Stella Young's activism resonated with you? It was because, first of all, we sort of have a great deal in common. We're both tiny redheads. We're both interested in um, comedy as a form of teaching. She was a stand-up comic. I was an improv coach. We both tend to have very foul mouths. We both have tempers. (laughs) And she was just so unreservedly unashamed that I was delighted to encounter someone who could just so bluntly be herself and be open and be joyously herself that it really helped me lose a lot of the shame that I had carried for much of my life. She also uh, coined the term inspiration porn, which we use quite often on this channel. It refers to this idea that people with disabilities are reduced to objects or props so that an able-bodied person can feel good about themselves by being around a disabled person, but the disabled person has little to no agency of their own. We're not going for inspiration porn here, but would you say that it's nevertheless possible to be inspired by people like Stella Young and other people with disabilities? Can we be inspired without going the route of inspiration porn? Yes, that's an excellent question and something I've thought about quite a bit myself. I don't want to think that inspiration porn has made it impossible for the disability community to use the word inspiration or inspiring because Stella Young will always be inspiring to me. The online work of many of my friends and disability activists will always be inspiring to me. Um, The people who fought for the ADA and on and on and on, all of those people are inspiring to me. I just think we have to have a crip understanding of the word inspiring, that it really is someone who opens our eyes to the possibilities and fights for the possibilities, not inspiration porn which is just, you know, a sidekick. Let's talk about that word CRIP, because there's a a movement back and forth within the disability community. To reclaim or not to reclaim, that is the question. So can we actually reclaim or rehabilitate words like like CRIP, for example? I was, at first, very nervous of the word CRIP, Mm. because it sounded so blunt, and it sounded you know, like potato chips, and I just, (laughs) it was a little unnerving to me at first. But the more Stella used it, the more I used it. And the more I used it and the more I saw it being used, the more I began to believe it was important that we do rehabilitate that word. That crip isn't just crippled. Crip is an attitude, a way of thinking, a philosophy, a mindset, and a route to freedom for all of us. And I think that that crip justice is a word we can use just the way we can use disability justice. Um, It ceases to be any kind of slur when we use it ourselves. What about able-bodied people or those who identify as able-bodied? Do they have an obligation to think about their language? 
being tone deaf or seeing a blind or having a blind spot? Do we need to start to unpack the meanings behind these words to do disability justice work effectively? Absolutely. Um, the body is um, the normative body as um, being the the way that so much of our language is formed is a very difficult rabbit hole once you start falling down it to get out of. But there are some common phrases like those you just mentioned Mm. that, yes, we should be doing without. Um, All people should be attempting to rid themselves of language like that's so lame. Mm -hmm. It should be just as inappropriate as that's so gay because I'm lame and I am not a, a swear word and I am certainly not something that is inadequate. So, yeah, we need to address language because the way we formulate our thoughts is the way we see ourselves. One of the things I wonder about is the the need for positivity, to be eternally positive and upbeat if you're a person with a disability. It almost seems like, to quote your book, Tiny Tim from A Christmas Carol took away our right to be angry as disabled people. What's the value of anger? Yeah, I I lived with Tiny Tim all my life because I was on a crutch for a good part of my life. One crutch like Tiny Tim. Mm. And I became at first initially incredibly resentful about this need to be chipper and polite and happy about the fact that, you know, we were oppressed and couldn't get into buildings and were quite likely being offered inadequate health care in many parts of the world and the country. And it was eventually that I realized this very expectation of being a good cripple like Tiny Tim was one of the ways that silenced us. We have a right to be angry. We have many things to be angry about. And when we can collectively share that anger, we can get change made. I'm speaking to Dorothy Ellen Palmer, author of a new memoir, Falling for Myself. So if anger is one of the things that you talk about in your book, you, you, you speak of it as reclaiming your birthright as a redhead. The other thing that's, that's pretty prominent in your book, which I wanted to talk about, was humor. And a lot of people think that humor is a way to break down barriers and make connections with able-bodied people. And I'm not saying that they're wrong, but humor can also be really powerful if it's imbued with conscientiousness, if it's imbued with purpose and with political meaning. What role does humor play in your life? Yeah, that's a fabulous question. And and I agree that political humor doesn't simply offer comic relief. It offers what I called in my improv classes, comic release. It releases um, any inhibitions for talking about something. It releases ideas. It releases emotion. It makes it possible for us to release the shame we have about talking about certain things with various other people. And I really honestly got that from 15-year-olds because when we did improv about some very difficult topics, the more difficult the topic, the funnier they got. Mm -hmm. And they were actually using that humor as a vehicle to get the difficulty of their topic across to the audience and out from themselves as well. So it's it's something that I think a lot of comics over the years have tied into. We've had fabulous political comics that um, have mostly been able-bodied, but crip humor is something that is really quite a wonderful way to release all kinds of discussions about disability. Mm. 
the other concept that you talk about in your book, and you introduce this fabulous concept just towards the end, is lookism. Tell us about what lookism is and how it ties into disability justice work. Um, lookism is sort of an umbrella term, and it comes from the idea that we make preconceived judgments by the way we look at a person and what we see at first glance. And lookism has all kinds of different implications. You could look at someone who's poorly dressed and make a judgment about their character. You could look at a short man and make judgments about his masculinity. You could look at a person of a certain race or wearing certain clothing and make judgment about them. It's anything to do with a snap judgment based on preconceived ideas of the way a person looks. And so... As you look to your future, what's next for you, Dorothy? <laughs> um, I'm writing a book, um, a series of articles on life on my, my sorry life on my mobility scooter, mm. and that is a whole different way of looking at the world, of looking at terrain, of looking at my ability to get back into nature and back into my community in a way that I haven't been able to do for almost 20 years. So it's been um, eye-opening in that way for me. It's been a blessing in many ways for me, but it's also helped me see some other forms of barriers more clearly. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm hoping to do with my next book. Well, it sounds fantastic. And when your next book comes out, you'll notice I don't say if, but I say when. I hope when your next book comes out, you will come back on The Pulse and talk to us about it. Thank you, Jolita. I'd love to. Thank you very much for being on the program. That was Dorothy Ellen Palmer, author of a new memoir called Falling for Myself. The book is available as a paperback and in Kindle edition, as well as Kobo ebook. Belonging is such an interesting concept. Being comfortable in our skin comes with time, comes with experience, comes with acceptance. It comes with fundamentally being comfortable with who we are, regardless of ability, regardless of race. And I don't say that we don't see race or we don't see disability. I mean we come to value these identities in our lives as bringing something meaningful, not just to us as individuals, but to the collective, to society as a whole. It's about loving ourselves and loving the rich diversity of the various people who make up the milieu and make up the society that we live in. And so I wanted to wrap up today with a quote from Dorothy's book, which spoke to me. There's a lot of things in that book that were so wonderful to read. But this quote written by Dorothy at the time when she comes to realize that she needs a walker and finally accepts that decision goes something like this. Open quote. I'm a better listener. Friend and mother, as pain and fear go down, patience, pleasant thoughts, love and laughter all go up. I have less fear of falling because nothing and no one can knock me down, closed quote. And in this little excerpt, she talks about the value that self-acceptance has brought to her life. I want to remind you that if you'd like to go and get caught up on my conversation with Dorothy Ellen Palmer or any of the other guests we have on the program, you can find us on your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, rate, or subscribe. Also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I want to thank Dorothy Ellen Palmer for being my guest today and for putting out such a wonderful book into the world. I hope you'll have a chance to pick it up and read it. And The Pulse is produced by Andrika Delaneral. Our technical producer today is Nasreen Abdul-Majid. 
who is sitting in for Sam Robinson. And of course, Andy Frank is our manager of AMI-audio. Thank you so much for listening to the program. If you have any feedback for us, please give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. And let us know if we have your permission to play the audio on the program. You can also find us on Twitter at AMI-audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. Or you can write us an email, write to feedback at ami.ca. On behalf of the crew, thank you very much for being part of the program. I've been your host, Juhita Gupta. Have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.